And originally it was um, used more so with, with epilepsy and there was some, some nice results I was getting in, in treating epilepsy through vagus nerve stimulation. And then from that, uh, they noticed that a lot of the people who have uh, who've been treated for epilepsy, um, who also had mood related problems were actually reporting feeling better. So then that led into uh, looking, investigating its effects in, in the area of depression. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today from Perth in Western Australia is psychologist and researcher, Dr. Adrian Lepresti. Hey, Adrian, how are you going? Good, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's, I think, um, your second time back on this channel, and you've been on the Your Health um, guide podcast as well. So thanks again for coming back. Um, and today we're going to dive into a topic which has been uh, trending lately, I suppose, um, becoming quite popular, but maybe there's a few myths around the area as well. So we've been uh, discussing this for a fair while and we thought we'd uh, uh, broadcast it today and that's on um, vagal nerve, nerve activity. So um, maybe just a bit of a, a context, what's your sort of feel and background on why did it pique your interest this uh interest in vagal nerve activity in your um domain of practice yeah i I suppose um my interest is because of its potential impact in terms of uh, anxiety and and its impact on the parasympathetic nervous system so uh so obviously as a psychologist yeah that plays a really important role in terms of depression and anxiety. So that's really what's uh, sparked my interest. And then obviously looking at uh, things that can kind of, we can do as practitioners to, to stimulate the vagus nerve. Sure. All right. So before we uh, dive into all the details about how we may or may not and, and where the evidence lies with vagal nerve activity, let's um, just do a bit of a 101. So uh, for the listeners, can you give a sort of a, a brief synopsis of what the vagal nerve is and, and what it does in the human body. Yeah, well, the, the vagus nerve is the longest cranial nerve, so it originates from the uh, brainstem and its its primary role is believed to be kind of around autonomic function um, and in particular uh, have a, a significant impact on the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's actually... Uh, has connections, I suppose, with uh, several organs, including the guts and the hearts and the liver and the lungs. So, and uh, and it's through that those connections that we can potentially, I suppose, turn it on and then uh, and then uh, possibly uh, increase kind of <clears throat> parasympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic response, which is our rest and digest response. Okay, and um, so yeah, the, as I understand. Uh, there's an afferent and efferent pathway as well. So uh, messages going up to the brain, but also messages um, going to the periphery? Yeah, about 80% of the effort is, is afferent so, uh, and 20% is, is efferent. So the connections in terms of the efferent is through the heart and, and, and gut and then vice versa, you know, the liver and the information from the liver and the heart and the lungs and, and the gut can, can you know, potentially impact or either turn on or turn off the vagus nerve, uh, which is really important because uh, for a lot of people, they have 
difficulties, so I suppose disturbances in the, the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic response. And uh, for a lot of people, we really want to try to turn up, turn on the parasympathetic response in them. Sure. All right. So before we dive into what it can switch on and off, um, you've been looking at this for a little while as well. Uh, potentially, obviously, the, the, the vagal nerve is deep within the body. It's hard to get a read on, but um, we potentially can get a bit of a proxy on vagal nerve function with um, heart rate variability or HRV. Uh, so can you describe what HRV is and how that's linked to um, vagal nerve? Yeah, the so heart rate variability is often believed as a kind of a, a, a marker of, of vagus nerve activity, and that is there's I suppose debates about how how much is representative of, of vagus nerve activity. But often you'll see in the literature people kind of saying, you know, linking the two together that a higher heart rate variability indicates a, a greater vagus response, and um, and that's not necessarily cool. Correct, but I think uh, I think it provides can provide a marker of vagus nerve activity. And the for people who don't know, with heart rate variability, um, every time we breathe in, our heart beats faster, and every time we breathe out, our heart beats slower. And uh, and ultimately, heart rate variability we actually want higher heart rate variability. That's a, I suppose generally perceived as a a marker of good health. Uh, so higher heart rate variability is a good thing. And supposedly, it, it can be a kind of a, a marker of, of vagus tone, I suppose, or vagus vagus nerve activity. Um, and there's different ways of measuring heart rate variability. There's a whole bunch of mathematical formulas that you can come up with, which I'm not au fait with, but uh, uh, there's you know, different ways to kind of measure it. And uh, you can do it through, um, obviously, heart rate monitors, and even there's there's pulse sensors that, uh, that are out there and uh, that you can connect to your ear or to your finger that provide a marker of heart rate variability. Okay. And um, just to clarify, because I've had this question from um, people in the audience and uh, we, we've both presented recently over in Perth about um, not to be confused with heart rate. So heart rate's your beats per minute, but this is the, the, the variation between one beat and the next and you don't want it to be metron metronomic um, as I understand, you want that plasticity or flexibility so it can ad adapt to the, the environment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's in a, in a, in a I suppose, a, a normal heartbeat. Um, so once your heart, stay heartbeat starts increasing after uh, up to over 120 beats a minute, then the heart rate variability is not so relevant. But certainly uh, below that, you do want variability between the beats, and then that's believed to be a, a, a good thing. Okay, so typically um, people measure it um, first thing in the morning. Is that correct to get a, a nice baseline? Yeah, you can do it in the morning. Um, there's even ways. Uh, there's different. You know, it's you can either. There's also other ways you measure it. You can also engage in exercise and and then measure your kind of um, yeah how quickly you return back to baseline and things like oh, yes. that. Um, that you can measure it, but certainly in the morning. Uh, you can also, from a, there's different programs out there like Heart Math and things like that, where you, you engage in a, uh, a breathing uh, relaxation response and you can measure heart rate variability while you're participating in, in, a, in, in that exercise. So you can also do it that way too. Sure, sure. Yeah, I believe it was um, mostly firstly researched from a, like a, a sports science perspective to, to monitor um, overload in, in yeah. uh, athletes. Um, so you're just 
just to recap, like a, a high heart rate variability is more of a, a parasympathetic um, state, whereas a, a low heart rate variability is more of a, a sympathetic state and that's possibly leading you into stress and disease. Correct. Okay. And there has been studies on um, chronic disease states, as I understand, on low heart rate variability, which we may infer um, um, poor vagal tone. So what are some of the um, conditions that have been linked to low heart rate variability? Well, in terms of if you think about the vagus nerve and, and, and conditions that are believed to be associated with you know, uh, dysfunction in vagus nerve or, or that are treated through the, with vagus nerve stimulation, there's obviously things like epilepsy is one that uh, is common there. Uh, even your uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, there's some research there around heart rate variability or vagus tone and, and, uh, and inflammatory bowel diseases like uh, Crohn's disease. Uh, certainly depression and other uh, and bipolar are two conditions that there's been some research indicating uh, dysfunction in, in in heart rate variability, obesity. There's some research there, cardiovascular disease, uh, even things like migraine and, and pain conditions are, are others that uh, that there's more and more research looking into. Uh, I suppose vagus, the vagus nerve, and, and the potential treatment of a vagus nerve, and uh, how that can impact on some of those conditions. Yeah, it's fascinating. The whole um, plethora of these chronic diseases are, are linked to at least certainly low heart rate variability and um, yeah, poor vagal nerve uh, activation. So let's um, do the flip side. Um, before we look at natural solutions, that's what I want to get to. There's a lot of claims out there at the moment about, I don't know, singing and, and gargling and everything else in between um, to stimulate the vagal nerve. Let's look at um, some really powerful uh, strategy that, strategies that have been documented to um, stimulate the vagal nerve and that's primarily through um, electrical stimulation of vagal nerves. So um, step us through some of the uh, clinical trials that have been done in this area in um, applying like an electrical device to the vagal nerve. Yeah, well, there's two ways that it can kind of uh, – you can – do it, treat it electri electrically, I suppose, and then there's a subcutaneous and then there's a trans transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation. So um, and originally it started out through the subcutaneous um, vagus nerve stimulation where you put an electrode and kind of stimulate it uh, that way. And originally it was um, used more so with, with epilepsy and there was some, some nice results I was getting in, in treating epilepsy through vagus nerve stimulation. And then from that, uh, they noticed that a lot of the people who have uh, who've been treated for epilepsy, um, who also had mood-related problems, were actually reporting feeling better. So then that led into uh, yeah. looking, investigating its effects in, in the area of depression. Uh, and uh, for for more so, you treatment-resistant depression. So there's there's some nice research indicating that vagus nerve stimulation may be an effective treatment for people with new uh, treatment-resistant. Uh, uh, depression, so, which is – and there's more and more research now kind of uh, looking at, at that side of things. Uh, in other areas, there's also, you know, research around um, migraine. There's some, some increasing research looking at its effects on migraine. Uh, cardiovascular disease is another, and uh, and even things like uh, your autoimmune conditions and your, and your inflammatory conditions, because that's something I haven't mentioned is that the vagus nerve – uh, also provides a very anti-inflammatory uh, response. And obviously, there's lots of conditions that are associated with increased inflammation. So the, the potential for, for 
stimulating the vagus nerve uh, in terms of treatment of different medical conditions is huge. Yeah, well, as we know, that inflammation is often underlying a lot of chronic diseases, and mm. even your work into depression has looked at that. Um, yeah, that that story around the discovery of this anti-inflammatory—they call it the uh, anti-inflammatory reflex or the cholinergic pathway—where um, Dr. Kevin Tracy really elucidated these mechanisms that showed, I think, stimulating the vagal nerve switched off TNF alpha production in the um, the spleen, and um, therefore reduced systemic inflammation. And I believe they've made um, devices now that are FDA approved to, to treat uh, rheumatoid arthritis and have had amazing results um, simply by stimulating the vagal nerve for this uh, horrible systemic condition. So maybe that's one of the, the mechanisms how it's helping all these um, these conditions. All right, so that's a bit of a, a background. So we can see that um, stimulating the, the vagal nerve can be powerful um, it's linked to all those conditions. Now this is where it gets into this sort of murky area of um, employing natural therapies to um, stimulate the potentially stimulate the vagal nerve and improve uh, health and well-being. So let's um, let's walk through this, and uh, I think we've got three broad categories here which we'll cover off. So um, the three sort of categories that can stimulate the vagal nerve through stress reduction techniques, um, exercises, and then uh, also nutrition. So there's four really. And then there's more physical things, which we'll get to as well. So let's uh, maybe start from the top. So um, looking at the research, what, what are, what's the effects of like different stress reduction techniques on vagal activity? Um, if you, I suppose if you're using heart rate variability as, as the marker, um, then there's, 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 Plenty of studies kind of indicating that engaging in certain uh, stress reduction techniques can stimulate or increase heart rate variability. And obviously, the, the, the main thing, in, in fact, is, is around the breathing. Um, that seems to be, mm. from my reading of the literature, is engaging in, well, engaging in dysfunctional breathing um, can uh, impact on, on, on heart rate variability or vagus or vagus nerve activity. So ultimately, if you can then do some slow breathing techniques, and generally, um, from my understanding and from my experience, in because I also do a, a, a fair bit of biofeedback, um, and and what's often recommended in terms of the breathing is 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 that the exhalation should be longer than the inhalation. So it's it's, it's a rhythmic controlled breathing process, but inhalation should be slow or should be let's say uh, let's say it's three, four seconds in it versus you know, five, six seconds out, and that can increase heart rate variability. So certainly a lot of your slow breathing techniques um, can be can be really useful. There's obviously uh, your, your meditative uh, techniques, uh, which also can be really important, but I've just reading recently a paper which which claims that you know, maybe, again, that the common link between all of these is, is around the, the breathing. That's that's kind of right. the key. So uh, um, so certainly that's uh, one way to, um, to target uh, vagus nerves is through teaching people slow, controlled breathing. Okay, and um, I, I saw or there's a paper you shared with me. There's a couple other interesting little um, references to things like music therapy and um, practicing forgiveness and mm-hmm. even um, laughter all having an effect. Any any of that jump out at you? Yeah, I mean certainly um, 
Uh, you know, there's certainly some research around forgiveness um, and and the impact that can have on heart rate variability, which is which is really interesting. And I think uh, I think therapeutically, it's a really beneficial uh, thing to do in terms of you're know, working towards forgiveness um, and and for the for the benefit of of the individual, because forgiveness is, also has a significant uh, impact psychologically and emotionally on on the individual. So certainly, there's research around forgiveness. Um, music um, seems to have an, an impact again on uh, not a huge body of research from my understanding, but certainly music. There's some research showing that you know, listening to different types of music can also affect uh, uh, Vegas nerve, which I think is more your, uh, I think it was more around your uh, Mozart type um, music that was, uh, was quite effective on heart rate variability. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting how. Um, I'm not sure how well that'll go with. I was just sorry, I was going to say I was, I'm not sure how well that'll go with teenagers, but uh, but yeah, true. Obviously. <laughs> Maybe there's some sort of remix um, that might have the same effect. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does. It, it, uh, what always strikes me um, is when they do research on these areas of almost sort of these softer sciences or these traditional therapies. It's amazing. Um, yes, they show efficacy, which is um, probably not surprising. But now they're elucidating all these. Um, cool new pathways all right so now moving on to more of the physical there's a a fair bit on exercise how which sort of you know maybe is a double-edged sword because exercise is a stress and it can um, put you into sympathetic mode in a sense but um long term i think there's benefits to exercise so what's the the research say around that with either heart rate variability or, or vagal tone yeah i mean definitely uh the research is pretty strong with regards indicated that uh, the people who are fitter uh, have higher heart rate variability. So uh, so certainly exercise would be um, a treatment that I think would be, or an intervention I think would be extremely effective in increasing heart rate variability. The, the thing you've got, I suppose the thing you've got with some of the uh, researchers out there, like let's say, for example, a laughter or... Um, uh, chanting or, or gargling, or you know, which we'll talk about. You know, maybe we'll talk about that later. But you know, what what real world efficacy does it have? Um, you know, what does it? What sustained effect does it have on on vagus nerve activity? Yeah. And while it may have a, a an immediate acute effect, does that sustain over the long term? And I'd say exercise is certainly one of those things that it does. Um, yeah, so I think that would have some really clinically meaningful effects on heart rate variability and on, on vagus nerve activity. Uh, learning to manage your breathing and, 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 and learning some slow controlled breathing would probably have sustained uh, effects and, and clinically meaningful effects on heart rate variability. Uh, possibly laughter, if you walk around and just laugh all day, maybe that would have a sustained effect, but I think <laughs> that might not go down so well. And I don't think necessarily... Yeah gargling or uh, walking around the streets gargling is probably uh, <laughs> again I, I don't you know i mean the, the, it has acute effects it's, yeah. it's you know maybe it has acute effects but does it have long-term effects does it really result in sustained increased heart sure. variability or vagus tone I, you know, yeah yeah that makes that. sense well mm. oops, someone maybe you can study that and recruit yeah. <laughs> Um, so with the exercise, is there any particular, you know, modality, aerobic, anaerobic, resistance training or yoga um, that has benefits? Um, I, I don't know whether there's 
one that I know that that's particularly stands out. I think the, the key seems to be fitness. Uh, right. So having some increased cardio uh, fitness is, is probably the really important component to it. So um, maybe that's uh, the key. But, I mean, ultimately I recommend people just engage in exercise that they find you know, that they can sustain, and if you can do a combination of resistance and uh, and cardio, that's probably the best way to go. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, a lot of these uh, advice um, dovetails into general advice as well as what you can enjoy, what you can sustain, etc. All right, which is probably not that dissimilar to um, nutrition, but I, I think still really fascinating because um, various nutrients have been looked at either um, vagal tone and or uh, heart rate variability. So. Uh, let's have a look at some of the the better documented ones. Um, well, omega three fatty acids, I think, have been looked at in a fair bit of detail. What's your your take on that? Yeah, there's a, there's a good body of research indicating that omega threes can uh, impact on on uh, I suppose heart rate variability, vagus tone um, potentially. So I think that's one that's there's some nice research, and I mean, given omega threes potential benefits from numerous from numerous conditions i think and potential uh mechanisms you know several mechanisms that can have a, a therapeutic effect uh i think you know maybe vagus nerve activity is one way that uh, it has a potential um positive effect on mood and, and inflammation and things like that so certainly omega-3s is, is one that i think would probably stand out for me as one that has a good body of evidence for heart reparability Yep. yep. Um, the other ones, uh, the other ones, interesting. I actually did a uh, uh, a while ago, and I'm, I may look at writing up a review paper at some stage if I've got time. Is is you know the connection between diet and and heart rate variability? But there's even some ah. research around uh, Mediterranean diet, and that seems to be impacting on on heart rate variability. Um, magnesium is another one that's actually quite surprising. Quite a few, there's a few studies indicating that magnesium can impact on, on heart rate variability, uh, and even um, now I don't know whether it's good or bad. It depends, I suppose, on the on, on the fact. But even things like high fat diets and caloric uh, caloric restriction and fasting can impact on uh, heart rate variability too. Some studies indicate that it's positive. Other studies indicate that that's not so positive, so there's still inconsistency there. And there was even one, one or two studies that I saw around meal timing and having a high energy intake ah. at dinner, increased yeah, right. sympathetic nervous system response and decrease yeah. the parasympathetic. So there's a whole bunch of uh, dietary factors that could potentially impact on heart rate variability. Yeah, it's fascinating. And again, that sort of ties into the body of evidence that I've looked at for that um, time restricted feeding, but also the I suppose more the caloric distribution through the day. The the data does seem to mm. point towards having a, a bigger breakfast, medium lunch, and smaller dinner. At least from what I saw on um, body composition and insulin sensitivity. So there you go again. Also with um, sympathetic tone. All right, yeah. there was a the one. Yeah, go for it. Oh, sorry, Nathan, I was going to say the other one that I saw too was uh, the association between vitamin D and heart rate variability. So ah, okay. lower levels of vitamin D associated with lower heart rate variability. So there's a few studies there indicating uh, potential um, associations. So so there's there's a whole bunch of dietary and, and nutritional and yeah, and obviously vitamin D through the sunlight and things like that that uh, you can yep. 
possibly increase heart rate variability. Yeah, interesting. Now, there's a one um, herb that I wanted to look at. There was a, a strange animal study in um, in curcumin and uh, uh, the um, vagal tone, and then we'll lead on to your broader discussion and, and interest in um, curcumin. So, um, yeah, can can you talk us through this uh, animal study where they um, gave curcumin orally and saw um, interesting effects on vagal tone? Um. You're going to get me here. I know that there was a study that, sorry, that sorry. looked at that. Uh, so, um, and I know that the you know, certainly curcumin had a positive effect on. Uh, was it? Did they use heart rate variability or some other yeah, measure yeah. of vagus tone? Yeah. Yeah. Well, perhaps I'll, I'll talk you through the study, and then you can yeah. um, lead on with your your research on curcumin. So, um, mm-hmm. they got. I know this is an animal study, but it's fascinating nonetheless where they um, induced arthritis into the poor little mice, but then they um, gave them oral curcumin and it completely abolished the arthritis. But then the researchers um, blocked the the vagal tone with um, pharmaceuticals, the vagal nerve going back down to the spleen and um, all the benefits of curcumin disappeared. So, um, And they monitored the heart rate variability in the, the, the mice, which I think they've also found in um, humans that curcumin actually um, uh, improves heart rate variability. But the researchers concluded that the um, curcumin exhibit, um, exerts anti-inflammatory effects possibly by stimulating this sort of gut-brain access and this anti-inflammatory reflex that um, Dr. Tracy elucidated. So, um, A, it's fascinating, but B, it, I wanted to just sort of... Um, segue on to curcumin because um you know there's always interest about bio uh, available um curcumin and taking all different fancy forms of turmeric which is great but um maybe the bioavailability is in the whole story and you've looked at this and are continuing to research this so can you just give us a bit of a update in the landscape of maybe the the mechanisms of curcumin yeah, the you know obviously a lot of the companies are uh, uh, promoting their curcumin and 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 promoting it, the virtues based upon its bioavailability and, and claiming that the the key is that a more bioavailable curcumin is going to have a greater therapeutic effect, which there actually hasn't been any research to indicate that. So greater bioavailability is is never you know has never been associated with increased therapeutic effects. So. And, and that's where I think the research should be should be looking at, rather than looking at bioavailability. We should be comparing different types of curcumin and going, you know, does it actually have any uh, difference in terms of its therapeutic effect? Um, and, and and given that there's so little amounts that uh, appears in the blood, I'm not saying that it's bioavailability. Bioavailability isn't important. It, it probably is, but. My research also, from my reading of the literature, and I wrote a review paper, I think, last year, talking about maybe curcumin works through its impact on, on the gut. Maybe that's one, one potential mechanism of action. Uh, and maybe through decreasing infl- inflammation in the gut, maybe by changing um, microbial kind of profile in the gut, uh, impacting a leaky gut, things like that, that it might be having its therapeutic effect. So, and therefore... Um, bioavailability is not so much the, the key there. So I think that's what we really need to look at now is kind of going, uh, you know, rather than spending all these rec- this money looking at bioavailability, let's look at, you know, what therapeutic action and does this curcumin extract, has it been shown to impact on this specific condition? 
uh, and, and doing it that way. So I've done a lot of research on uh, you know, BCM95, which is uh, in terms of its impact on, on depression. Uh, so there's been quite positive studies in relation to, to that. And, and my question to people would be they're going, if you're going to use curcumin for depression, make sure you're using an extract that has been shown to have a, uh, a therapeutic effect on that condition. Yeah. Saying that if you're going to use it for arthritis, you know, what um, has that particular extract been investigated for that particular condition and therefore choosing according to that rather than based upon a bioavailability. Yeah, well said. And yeah, so I suppose at the moment, like, aim to use extracts that have um, been proven for that condition if they're possible. Um, and yeah, maybe in the future we'll find out that uh, in part, curcumin's working through maybe the microbiome or the stimulating the, the vagal nerve and the gut brain access and, um, but yeah, are in and around the gut rather than um, systemically. Watch this space. Um, I'll have an answer to that in the next uh, six months. I'm actually about to start next week a study looking at, uh, at the effects of a curcumin extract on uh, the microbiome. So we're doing, so it's people with. Uh, self-reported digestive complaints and oh, yeah. we're obviously going to look at changes in those digestive symptoms but we're also looking at changes in the microbiomes uh, and also we're going to look at changes seeing what impact it has on, on SIBO too so that's another two uh, other things we're measuring in, the, in this study. Mm. Oh, wow, so looking forward to that. All right, um, so while we're in the gut and looking at natural therapies, um, an area which is starting to draw a lot of interest is um, probiotics for the the brain or these um, psychobiotics and uh, it may be if they are working they they may be working via this um, vagal nerve so I just wanted to maybe get your view on where we are at the moment with um, you know mood enhancing um, probiotics because as I said it's maybe early days but there's a lot of interest here yeah this this uh there's a few studies now that, uh, I mean, a few meta-analyses that have been published, one re recently, which the, the conclusion was that uh, probiotics on the whole seems to have a, a positive benefit in terms of its treatment for depression. Um, and the problem you've got with a lot of studies on probiotics is they're, they're being done on healthy people and, yeah. and then looking at the mood-enhancing effect on healthy people, which you're not going to see a lot because they're already not feeling that the mood's okay to begin with. But when they use probiotics in people with diagnosed depression, we're seeing that it has a, has a therapeutic effect, uh, which is really good. They're still not quite sure about the different strains and, um, and the combinations, and, but generally they, it seems as though the, the lactobacillus bifidobacterium combinations are probably better, but uh, there's still a lot more research to do on that. Uh, when it comes to anxiety, there's far less research uh, as a treatment for anxiety, but certainly uh, more so with, with uh, depression. Okay, so hopefully in the future we'll, I know it's always hard to get these studies conducted on um, disease states, but hopefully we'll see research done on people with depression and, and clinical anxiety and we might see a, a better a signal amongst all this. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, and and again here, this is where the probiotics. Um, it seems to be from animal studies that uh, one potential mechanism of action is by the vagus nerve. So uh, there's been a couple of animal studies where they had uh, gave them pro, you know, probiotics and and it had antidepressant or anxiolytic effects. But then when you severed the vagus nerve, those uh, those effects were no longer seen. So 
So potentially, it seems as though probiotics may have an impact on, on vagus nerve. Okay. All right. Um, now, just quickly, physical, you mentioned like um, the gargling, the yodeling. Um, any any uh, insights there on um, if any of these techniques, um, you know, I think it's like tongue brushing because of the, the gag reflex. Um, yeah, what's your sort of clinical takeaway? I know you said that maybe it's a, a short-term benefit. Is there any... Do you think there's any um, benefit from doing this on a regular basis? Um, I'll, look, I probably it's it's not something I, I would recommend to my clients necessarily. I uh, I think in terms of people um, regularly engaging in those behaviours, it's it's hard enough to get people to take a, a tablet every day yeah. and remember to take a tablet every day um, to get people to gargle. And it's not gargling for five seconds, it's gargling for a few minutes to get right. people to do that and to get people to put a tongue on and to trigger the gag reflex. Um, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of compliance, So, but I don't know whether, you know, if people are uh, interested in recommending those approaches to people then then fine but uh i'm not i'm not convinced by it yet so therefore it's not something i'm going to be uh, uh recommending yeah um, yeah there's other things like you know, uh you know obviously from a physical side of things i think disturbed sleep will affect our vagus uh nerves so ensuring that somebody has good sleep uh, treatment for sleep apnea I think it's going to be really, really important in terms of vagus nerve. So those are the things from a physical standpoint. Um, and even people who are uh, obese, uh, they're more likely to have lower vagus nerve activity or lower heart rate variability. So trying to get people to kind of lose weight is, which is not is it, you know, easier said than done, but certainly uh, that may have a really positive impact on, on vagus nerve and, and, and heart rate variability. Yeah. All right. So... Now back to uh, to yeah clinical application. Now I know um, yourself. You've got like the aura ring and which can measure heart rate variability. Do you ever suggest to patients to start monitoring heart rate variability? So what's the I suppose the pros and cons of of recommending such a strategy? Um, I I haven't yet. So I haven't really got people to do that so much. Um, so yeah, I have the aura ring which measures. Uh, heart rate variability um, during the during the night, um, and I personally I don't really look at it and go, oh great, my heart rate variability is low or high. Um, I mean maybe I would, maybe that could be a measure to, to use. I mean the, the problem with the Aura Ring is three four hundred dollars, so whether people are interested in, in investing in that. But um, it, for me, it does give me uh, feedback on my sleep. And 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 make and for me it kind of makes me more accountable, I suppose. So uh, so if somebody's interested in those devices, and and uh, and I'm only really aware of the aura ring uh, in terms of a sleep one. I'm, are you aware of anything else, Nathan? That, oh, no, well that's the one I that's the one I keep hearing about. Um, I don't yeah. have one, and I'm probably more of the the type that. I don't really like having too much data because I probably overanalyze it. Yeah. So that's probably my yeah. my question. Like sometimes, you know, all these metrics and biohacking, um, it's a double-edged sword. You can come maybe a bit too sort of fixated and obsessed on it. And um, I'd prefer to minimize that for myself. But, you know, every patient's different. But, um, yeah, I have heard that um, overwhelmingly the aura ring sort of the, the top of the range. 
Yeah, yeah, just not sure. Um, I, I don't think I would necessarily recommend it as a um, as a primary therapeutic tool. For, you know, myself, I think unless somebody is really into that stuff, and and you got it, and you're right. For some people, it can be can be quite negative. You know, um, whereas for others, it's quite positive. You know, for some people. Um, wearing pedometers uh, significantly increases their physical activity in a positive way. For others, they become quite obsessed about it. And for others, it's just an absolute waste of time and they never put it on. So yeah, it really yeah. does need to be individualized. Yeah, good point. All right, so to sort of conclude, um, yes, vagal nerve's important. There's some potential tools here. It seems to me like dovetail into a lot of the sort of you know, foundational therapies that we're doing. Could you like maybe just summarize what do you think your key um, therapeutics are to naturally support um, heart rate variability and vagal tone? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's all this, it's very similar. There's so much overlap, you know, it needs to be integrated, uh, I suppose, in its approach. And we, we talked about exercise, we talked about sleep, we talked about diet, uh, we talked about uh, relaxation. So you've got all those different mechanisms and, you know, you, I think you can't go wrong when you're targeting all those different areas and, and we're not quite sure how potentially they would be um, impacting on, uh, you know, what's the mechanisms behind using this integrative approach and maybe mm. one mechanism is via its vagus nerve activity. So, you know, I think people need to just continue to do what they're doing, you know, recommend good sleep, recommend exercise, recommend stress reduction, improve self-care, all those different factors are things that they need to, to really do, which is which I suspect is what a lot of practitioners are doing already. Yeah, absolutely. And the other uh, area I'm uh, wondering about is like the, the effect size or comparable to, I probably don't want to communicate that this is um, equivalent to like those targeted... Um, electrical stimulation that have been, you know, clinically proven to help with epilepsy and, and um, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, what's your sort of take on that? Yeah, I, I personally haven't had um, uh, any experience uh, in the, the electronic devices. Uh, so mm. really, I've only really read about it in the, in the literature. So I'm not, I'm not even sure um, yeah. who's doing that here in Australia or whether... Do you, I don't know much about. No, I don't know. No, I don't know. Mm. I just when I've seen the research, like they get pretty yeah. profound effects. I'm just, yeah, not sure that um, you know, the exercise or not that exercise is, you know, we've shown to be, we know it's really beneficial, but probably isn't as specific as uh, you know, the the treatment for epilepsy, but yeah. still a good, a good, yeah. There's no reason not to do it. Yeah, exactly right. All right, so that's been a really good tour of um, what the vagal nerve is and how it relates to heart rate variability. We've got some, um, it's really reinforced, I suppose, some of the, the foundational. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time. You, you're always really well-balanced and well-read. Um, maybe just share, yeah, what, you've got some research underway and I'm about to do some more research. You touched upon the curcumin. Give us an update from your research perspective. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, about to start a uh, a study on curcumin and obviously uh, the gut and microbiome. I'm also looking at another one, which is a multi-herbal combination again, looking at its impact on the gut. Um, and about to actually this week finishing up on a uh, on a study looking at um, a treatment that I've developed known as personalised integrative therapy or PI therapy. And uh, and here. 
we are investigating the effects of this integrative approach for depression and anxiety. And, and what happened was that uh, people attended a one-day workshop and, and, and some people received CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, another group received PI therapy, and another group received PI therapy plus a range of supplements. Um, yeah. and, uh, uh, and the results are looking really interesting. So, right. watch your space. Really? Yeah, watch your space, definitely. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I hope to, uh, and we finish uh, collecting data next week. And then after that, I'm hoping that we can try to aim for publication later uh, later this year. So, uh, we'll see whether an integrative approach, how it compares to CBT and how adding supplements um, does or doesn't impact on uh, on therapeutic outcomes with anxiety, depression. Oh, interesting. And you just uh, published recently, uh, was it a meta-analysis on saffron? Um, yeah, I was involved in that, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of, um, I was one of the co-authors, but uh, uh, we d- uh, did a review, a meta-analysis on saffron um, and uh, and yeah, a, whole, a whole bunch of us were involved in that process. Wolf, Wolf was the um, was the, the main uh, primary author, but it was really uh, nice. You know what we're seeing is that overall the the, the research on saffron for depression is is extremely positive. Um, I mean, a lot of the research has been done in Iran, and uh, and I've done a few oh, yeah. studies now here in uh, in. Australia, so uh, and the results have been positive. So we really need to make sure that when we're doing research, we try different cultures and different populations to see what impact it has. And I'm just about to um, should be out this week or next week a uh, study looking at saffron as an adjunct to antidepressants. So uh, this was a study and with 160 people who are on antidepressants but we're still suffering from uh, depressive symptoms. And we want to look at whether adding saffron, which is the one we used was a, a, an extract known as Afron. And uh, and we gave them Afron for uh, eight weeks or they went on a placebo. And we had some really nice uh, results um, indicating that certainly as an adjunct, uh, saffron can certainly be used as a therapeutic um, agent for people in, who are on antidepressants but still suffering from depression. So I've got that one that should be out this week. And I've, another interesting one that I should, again, should be out, another paper I wrote that should be out next week or next week or so is a review looking at how stress impacts on micronutrient concentrations. Mm. And, uh, does stress, uh, and really the ones that I looked at that was available in the literature was stress and its impact on magnesium. Uh, zinc was another one. Calcium was another one. And looking at what impact stress has on those micronutrient concentrations. So that should be out in the next week or so. Wow, you're certainly busy looking at all different angles from herbs and nutrients. Um, I'm glad that you're, you're doing it and you're um, juggling that and seeing um, patients in in practice. So, yeah, kudos to you and I'm looking forward to, to seeing um, the results there. So um, final personal question as a, a psychologist, integrative therapist, um, we speak about this a lot between the two of us. How long can I stop for overnight and watch the Ashes cricket before it impacts my health? Oh, it depends on whether Steve Smith's in or not. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so it really depends on whether we're winning or not. For losing, then you probably need to go to bed pretty early. So. Okay. 
All right. Well, you're lucky. You're average. You get a couple extra hours, but I think probably 80% of our uh, conversations around Aussie rules and cricket, and there's about 20% on on technical talk. But I'm glad we've. Um, it's not really the audience that particularly uh, really follow the the footy or the cricket, but I had to get it in there. <laughs> Um, so thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I'd love to touch base with you again. Um, you're, as I said, a really good objective, um, balanced source of information, not all these areas which are, are trending and um, interesting in natural therapies, but sometimes we have to yeah, look at these. We should always look at these objectively so we can really take away the clinical benefits. So thanks again, Adrian, for all your time and um, effort for this one. No, no problem, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.